Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is Margaret McSweeney, and I am just so thrilled that you've tuned in today to Kitchen Chat. Welcome back if this this is uh, your second time around, and, and welcome to you if you are new listeners. It's all about just having fun in the kitchen and, and discovering taste, discovering all things about food and, and talking to these wonderful chefs and, and cookbook authors and, and just going on a culinary quest. And as you know, many of you know, I am not a very good home chef. But I love to eat, and I am just so excited about taking this journey with you. And and so many of you have truly become friends in the process, and I so appreciate your your emails, your tweets, your Facebook messages. And, and I'm so delighted we actually have a new way to connect listeners. Now I have just launched the new Facebook for Kitchen Chat, and it's all one word, so please Please look me up on Kitchen Chat, and I can't wait to connect that way as well. Well, today we have quite a treat. I am just delighted um, to share the show with you today. We have a James Beard award-winning. His bio is five pages long, just truly an icon in the culinary world. I cannot wait for you to meet Chef Sanford D'Amato, also known as Chef Sandy, and he's joining us from Milwaukee and just a lot of exciting things going on there with with his new book and new ventures in life. And then the second segment, we'll have a little kitchen chat with um, a master of tea. So this will be a fun show, and I just encourage you to to grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and, and sit down and enjoy the kitchen chat. So first, I would like to introduce to you Chef Sanford D'Amato, also known as Chef Sandy. Welcome to Kitchen Chat. Oh, good morning, Margaret. Thank you. Great oh. to be here. Oh, I'm so delighted that you're here, and I'm literally just sitting in my kitchen doing this podcast and and just so thrilled to have you on. And listeners, I want you to know all about Chef Sandy. I mean, this is truly an honor to have you on. He is uh, was one of the very first James Beard Award nominees in 1990 when it first came out, and along with, oh goodness, as, as we all know, listener Chef Charlie Trotter, who just passed away in Chicago, and the culinary yeah. world, yes, we're just mourning, and, and my personal condolences to you, Chef Sandy, um, I, I'm sure that, that well, yes, it goes along, the ties are long. Well, and, Charlie... Charlie was a was a great, not only a great chef but a but a great friend. Over the years, we um, you know we actually met back in uh, 1990 when uh, and before that I, I received this telegram from the James Beard Foundation and I had never I had never even gotten a telegram before 
and it said, uh, you've been nominated for Best Chef Midwest. And, and I had a number to call. So I called up the number, and I asked, so, well, what do I have to buy? Because I figured it was you know, some <laughs> sort of promotional thing or something. And the woman started laughing. She said, no, no. She said, you've been, you've been uh, nominated as uh, Best Chef. This is the James Beard Foundation, the first year we're doing the awards. And it's, uh, it is you and uh, Charlie Trotter and Rick Bayless. And uh, so right after that, um, within like about a month or two, I got a, um, I received a call from Charlie, and he was doing a, a, a dinner in, uh, at his restaurant in Chicago. It was one of the early James Beard out-of-house dinners, and he invited, um, he invited 12 chefs to come down for the dinner. It was uh, Norman Van Aken and Emeril Lagasse and uh, Gary Nahabedin, who, who were actually going to be at Naha on, on Saturday with her. Yeah. And a uh, whole, whole group of chefs. And uh, I had such a good time down there. I thought, gee, I wish I could do that in Milwaukee. And then I thought, well, I have a restaurant. I can do that. So I, uh, about six months later, I invited, uh, I, I did our first James Beard dinner at, at Sanford. And I invited uh, Charlie first to come down. And then uh, John Joho and uh, Celeste Sicola and Paul Bartolotta. And uh, that was the first of, uh, 12 years of dinners that we did were bringing, you know, five, six chefs into Milwaukee each year. And uh, it was all from the inspiration from Charlie from, from doing that. And, uh, and, over the, and, and over the years, too, I mean, he had, um, any time that he brought someone in, uh, like a chef from, uh, from over from France or, from, or a winemaker, whatever, he'd have a dinner at the restaurant, but then the next day, you would do a luncheon at Trotter's for for uh, local chefs, and he'd always invite me up. And so I went to many, many dinners there. Um, he, was, he was a very, very generous man, and and uh, and someone who really not only put Chicago on the food map, he put the Midwest on the food map. Uh, really, going to be very much missed. I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy. Yes, and my my personal condolences, and and it was really so amazing. This must have been the event that you're referring to. I found this incredible photo of all these chefs, just as you were mentioning, um, from 1990 on the steps of Charlie Trotter's restaurant, and uh, and it was so special too because several of them have been on Kitchen Chat with uh, Chef. Well, yeah, I'm sure Rick, yeah. Rick Tomato and uh, yes. uh, Barbara Tropp, who is, I know has passed away, but uh, Brian Whitmer, um, Patrick Clark. Um, there was uh, just an incredible group yes. of, of, of chefs there. Oh, what an incredible memory. And and I have to ask you this. So what was one of your favorite dishes that uh, Chef Charlie Trotter would prepare? Well, I tell you, and it was a dish that he, um, we were we were doing. A, um, he invited me down with uh, with another chef to do a uh, kind of a cook off sort of thing in his kitchen. The three of us we were doing it for it was for it was for I think restaurants and institutions magazine, and it was uh, um, we each were given like a mystery box, and then we did a little cook off. And afterwards, after we did that in the afternoon, he invited Angie and I, and uh, it was uh, Raji. Was the other chef there? The three of us to come back for dinner, and um, he had a dish that he, he was making a risotto. He had he'd gotten some fresh truffles in, 
and had uh, had the truffles in the rice jar and did this uh, risotto, which was very not in keeping with his... He was, he was almost apologizing for it because he said, this is, he said, I know this is really old school and, you know... It's not normally on my menu, he said, but I had these truffles and the rice was great. And it was one of the most phenomenal dishes. Wow. I still remember the, you know, the taste of that when he made that. It was, it was just fabulous. That, what an incredible memory. So you all had mystery boxes then <laughs> that you had to, to prepare. And then he did that special meal for you. Oh, that, that you know, it, it is really about bringing people into the to the kitchen and connecting on on such an incredible level just just around food and and friendship and and also I think um, you'd mentioned somewhere on on your website and and listeners I'm going to provide a link and we're going to talk about his fabulous new cookbook called Good Stock but it, it kind of encapsulates this where you say there's this bind between food that someone cooks and where it comes from there's this bond, oh. this bond, yes. Well, completely. Well, that's, that's, the, uh, that's really the, the whole crux of, of the book. It's Good Stock Life on a Low Simmer, but it, it, uh, it's a, about three-quarters of the book. It's a 430-page book, but three-quarters of the book is memoir, and then there's 80 recipes. Uh, and the, um, the memoir part, it, it's my story of, of coming up and st- actually starting in 1950 where um, where the book was conceived, uh, which was actually my father's and grandfather's grocery store, which in 1989 became Sanford Restaurant. My grandfather opened it up in ni- you know, 1921 as the grocery store. But uh, not only was the book conceived there, it was actually, I'm pretty sure I was conceived there <laughs> also, because I... I we lived upstairs above the above the restaurant for the first three years that uh, uh, of my life. Um, but the um, but the recipes because everyone always asks me where do your recipes come from, and the recipes come from the stories because without the stories, there there just aren't the recipes. And something that a lot of people overlook, even sometimes a lot of chefs overlook when they're cooking, is they're looking to, uh, you know, for the next hot dish or the next thing that's coming out, but they don't always look into themselves. And everybody has what I like to call you know, your taste memories, and they're very distinct just to you. And that's what makes um, that's what makes in a chef. That's what makes really distinctive food because it's not only the technique um, that you learn from other chefs. And um, and the recipes and and the craft of it, but it's also looking into yourself, what you have that is that is distinctive from what anyone else has, and that's your memories. And if you bring that out in your food, whether you're a professional or um, or just a home cook, you're going to have really delicious, great food. That um, that and people will say, you know, where you know where did where did this food come from? Because you can taste. Food that comes from someone's soul. Wow! And so, what would you say is your signature dish that comes from your soul that really reflects your deepest taste memory? Um, well, I'd have to say, and it's it's a variation on my uh, uh, grandfather's spadini. Um, it, it's something that was 
my favorite dish growing up. And um, anyway, it was, it was funny. A couple, a few years back, I was doing it for because I I end up doing it for Christmas a lot of years uh, when we're you know when I'm with my sister and um, and when my parents were still alive too. We'd always we always make it. But she said, you know, it was one of the, probably about six, seven years back. She said, she said, you know, she said, you finally did it. It's, it's better than grandpa's. <laughs> you know, <and> that's <laughs> the, ultimate, the ultimate compliment, you know, because uh, um, I, I reworked it a little bit, but, it, but it's, uh, but it's still that, that those basic flavors that, that just bring you to that comfort zone. And for me, it's always, yeah, it's always been the Spadini. Interesting, and and it's called Spadini, is that right? How? Yeah, it's just Sicilian Spadini. The Spadini actually is um, what it means is is things on a little skewer. So, in like in Rome, they have the uh, Spadini, but it's it's like breaded mozzarella cheese and uh, with an anchovy vinaigrette. Um, this Spadini um, in Sicily is it's a beef roll up. It's real thin beef, and then you take um, breadcrumbs. And you mix that with a uh, with a good uh, Sicilian tomato sauce, and then there's I put in some uh, pancetta, and, uh, and depending on what parts of Sicily, and you might find uh, like more of a sweet and sour component. Where they'll have uh, raisins and capers, and things in it, um, and and then that's uh, skewered with onion and bay leaf in between, so you get a real distinct flavor of the bay leaf, um, and uh, and they're just uh, Sauteed in olive oil and then finished off in the oven, and oh. they're uh, they're absolutely delicious. This sounds delicious, and I must ask: Is there a secret to the Sicilian sauce? Well, um, I for me, it's 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 like a, a kind of a almost like a quick caramelization of the onions as you're making it. Um, if it's a, you know, just taking your time as you as you're doing the process, cooking them and you know, olive oil, a lot of garlic, and then and then cooking the tomato paste out too, to get a little actually getting a little color on the tomato paste, so it isn't that bright red. It starts to turn like kind of that uh, vermilion color. Okay. Before you add in the tomatoes and uh, and but but beyond that, I, I know a lot of a lot of uh, Sicilians add sugar to it. Oh. I don't. Okay. Um, I think when you when you caramelize the tomato paste, you, you get the, that you know that sweetness in it. But um, but usually a lot of times that was to compensate for the um, when the Sicilians came over to the United States to compensate for the lack of um, of sweetness in the tomatoes they were they were getting here because uh-huh. of, because it's much sunnier in Sicily, so they they get a really they get a much sweeter tomato. That but but nowadays. You can get, you know, you can get great, great tomatoes and great paste and everything. So there's, I don't really think there's a need for that anymore. Exactly. But I, I also like to cook some, I also like to cook some sausage in it. As oh. I mentioned, to have a little pork component in it, and the sausage is great to eat afterwards. That does sound good. And and for those who might not have access to fresh tomatoes and everything, canned can can the home chef substitute oh, canned the tomatoes? Oh, sure. I mean, okay. you get a good uh, San Marzano uh, tomato. That's you know that's perfect for it. I mean, a lot of times, unless if it's in unless if you're in prime tomato season, that's the way to go. Unless if, okay. unless if you can tomatoes yourself, or you or you might uh, you know like freeze some in. Uh, from from the summer months, 
Okay. So yeah. They, yeah, the canned tomatoes are um, perfect substitute. Great. Great. Well, I'd love to go back to your culinary beginnings here. Um, you were a graduate from the Culinary Institute of America in 1974 and then stayed there for a year of fellowship at, in the Escoffier Room. And, and this was really quite new. I mean, the, the whole popularity of Top Chef and, and everything had not really uh, started quite yet. And you... You really wowed uh, the French chefs who who seem to have, you know, uh, um, a hold on on the culinary world. You truly made a big difference in New York. Uh, can you can you kind of share about what that was like being one of the only <laughs> American uh, chefs there? Well, you know, before I um, before I even got down to New York. Um, Going to the Culinary Institute at that time, I, I started the year that they moved from, uh, they were originally on New Haven's campus and in, in, um, on Yale's campus in New Haven. And then they moved to Hyde Park in, uh, 19, early, you know, end of 1970, 1971. And, uh, starting at the school then, it was, it was quite different than it is today. I mean, it was, it was more of a, I went there the year before it opened. And it was an old Jesuit seminary, and which had been abandoned for a lot of years. So it was kind of a ramshackle type place at that time. And they really did a you know beautiful job of you know of, of putting it together. But the difference at the school early on at that time was that the majority of chefs that were there, almost I should say, not even majority, almost all of them, were chefs before they were teachers. They were hired because they were good chefs. And so at times, the teaching aspect was more like working in a, in a outside kitchen atmosphere than actually being in school. Because they, um, you know, they had, they, as, as they, because they weren't teachers, they really were not concerned at times with students that they didn't feel measured up, that, that were worth wasting their time on. And that was a good and bad thing because a good part of it was there were a lot of really, really good chefs there that you could learn from. The bad part was they always weren't great teachers and they didn't, they didn't, uh, dole out their knowledge to everyone. But, um, but another thing was that one of the teachers, my first mentor, Peter Von Earth, that was working there, he was kind of what I like to call a, you know, like a flawed genius. Hmm. Um, he had, uh, you know, he, he wasn't above going out, you know, and uh, having a few and then uh, kind of sleeping it off in the car and walking into the school in the morning. And, um, <laughs> not, not quite what, what the typical culinary institute instructor would be today because, you know, the administration necessarily wouldn't put up with that. But he was, he was really a genius at cooking and 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 what and the knowledge that he had, and um, and it's kind of sad that you know like today he wouldn't be someone that that could be teaching there because it's just like you like like for example if you're at Harvard something you know there's always the professor that that doesn't always play by the rules, but the reason he's there is because he's such a great teacher and he, and he's such a he's he's a genius, yeah. wow. and um, I think. You know, sometimes you, it's better to put up with some of the quirks of someone 
to, to gain that knowledge. Right. And so what do you feel that you mainly gained from working with Chef Peter Von Orp? What What did he teach you technique-wise or food-wise that really stays with you today? Well, he, he, what, he taught, uh, what he taught me at that time was he had a, a very global perspective. And this was, I mean, this was 1970, you know, 1971, where um, any, any type of um, ethnic food outside of, of an actual ethnic restaurant, if it was done by the French, like if they were doing a curry, it was not like really an Indian curry. It was, it was a French curry. It was a French dish where it would be a cream sauce with a little pinch of curry powder in there. The food he was doing at that time was very, um, was very in keeping with the different cuisines of the world. We were doing, we were doing dishes from, from the Middle East, from India, from Thailand, uh, from all, you know, like all over Europe, all over Asia. And he would have me do extensive research, and at the time that meant going to the library. There was no, there weren't computers, there was no internet, right. no computers right. or anything. <laughs> so I would, I would go down and I'd, I'd you know, do research for um, three or four hours on, for example, uh, um, like a, say like want a, a cold cucumber soup. I'd find all the different variations of that and then come back and then uh, I'd, I'd have all, I'd, I'd start talking to him about it and, and then after I went through all that, then he'd tell me what we were actually doing, because he already knew what we were going to make. But he wanted me to go through the process of finding out about the food, of learning the history of food, because he, he understood that if you, didn't, if you don't know the history of food, um, you, can't, you can't really innovate at any time. It's, it's like people saying they're, they're pushing the envelope. If you don't understand the envelope, you can't push the envelope. So anyone, you know, like take, for example, Grant Atkins, I yeah. mean, who is doing, you know, incredible, you know, food at Alinea. I mean, he has a basis of, of great food knowledge. He, he you know, he, he didn't just all of a sudden do what he's doing right now. He went through, uh, you know, like his parents' place. Uh, cooking with that and, and to all, you know, to cooking with Thomas Keller and, and doing all this classical food. And then he went out because he can do that because he understands where food comes from. And that's important for any chef to do that because a, a lot of times now chefs just want to, they just want to create. They want to, they want to do something that nobody's done before. And in order to do that or in order to understand if you're doing that, you have to understand what everyone has done before, before you can do that. Yes, that is so true in all all parts of life. That that is very very wise. Yes, and and also it must be such a challenge because you see all of these different techniques and food trends and and all of that occurring and and into the modern cuisine and and, and kind of less of the fancy French side of things. And you were part of that wave. Well, right. I mean, what is going on in, in food today, um, whereas uh, chefs who don't understand, you know, like a lot of the precepts of, uh, for a better word, molecular gastronomy, um, kind of have the same feeling that the French chefs had um, in the early 70s when Nouvelle Cuisine was coming in. I mean, they were, um, some chefs embraced it, 
some chefs were very threatened by it because it was uh, it was going against the precepts of a scoffier, which they had been cooking with for years and years. And um, but but slowly, it becomes every everything becomes mainstream because people people see where it is and they they learn the, the different techniques and then they incorporate them into their food and, and then it becomes it just becomes another natural part of the growth of, of food in the world. Right. And it's all about taste <laughs> too, no matter oh, what always. technique. <laughs> Does always. It I mean that's that's I've I've always I've always felt that if um, you know a, a dish you have to you know you eat with your eyes, which is true. That's where you that's where you start. But you finish with your palate. And uh I always like to say with my with my food, if someone doesn't have um, someone who doesn't think that they'd like to just throw their silverware away and put their face in, in the plate and keep eating until it comes up, that I've done something wrong. You know that's that's <laughs> that, that's the way it should be. It, it should there should always be this um, I think this almost primal urge when you're eating that you're that you're transported and you you actually kind of forget for a moment where you are. Wow, that you that you just right into the food, and it becomes a taste memory. You're really creating taste memories for for the diners and and for the yeah the the home chefs oh, who try your recipes yeah. and everything. And oh, oh, listeners, this is what really jumped out at me on his bio page, Chef Sandy. You were one of twelve chefs chosen by Julia Child to prepare, cook and prepare for her 80th birthday. Please yes. share about that incredible <laughs> taste memory. Well, uh, when um, we were actually uh, got this call, this phone call, and uh, and I had, I had met uh, Julia earlier. She had been to uh, Wisconsin a few times. And uh, she'd come to she'd come to the restaurant, and then the first year that we opened, uh, we um, we had Julia come out. I, um, it was in conjunction with the AIWF chapter. I was one of the founders of the chapter there, and so we took her all around the stage. And on the on the way back, it was just a you know little story about uh, coming back. Um, and this is actually at the book too. But uh, we were we were flying back. We went to a veal farm, Provini Veal. Um, and they flew us back in their company jet back to the, back to the Waukesha County Airport. And as we were as we were flying in, uh, Gabe, uh, Julia's aide was Gabriel Sayer. She looked out the window of the plane um, as we were about to land, and she said, "Sandy said, come over here." And I looked out the window. She said, "What is that?" And I looked out and I said, "Oh my gosh, it's the Wienermobile. They sent the Oscar Mayer <laughs> Oscar Mayer Wienermobile to pick us up." <laughs> and and Gabriel looked and she said, I don't think so. And she just wasn't too excited about this whole thing. And uh, and I was really disappointed because early on when I was a child, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile used to come around to uh, grocery stores when my dad had the grocery store. It was about five years old. And it, and it drove up and the door opened up. And, uh, and at that time they had, uh, well, it was, a fellow called Little Oscar, and he was actually he was about four foot five, 
with a big chef hat. He'd come out and he was, um, he would come out and give wiener whistles to all the kids and they'd have a tour of the bus. And I, I was so frightened when he, when he jumped out and he started walking in the store that I ran in the back and I never got to go on the wienermobile. Oh no. <laughs> oh, so, so I was really disappointed that, you know, oh, so now I'm going to miss it again. And Julia looks out the window and she says, well, I think I'd like to go on that wiener bus. <laughs> and it was like, Julia, where have you been all my life? So, so transpired as surreal a situation as I've ever been in. We're driving down I-94 in the Wienermobile with Julia Child, blowing our, blowing our Wiener whistles as the, as the Oscar Mayer theme song is going out over the, um, over the, on the inside and outside of the Wienermobile. And people, you know, cars are beeping as they pass and waving. So we pull up to the Fister Hotel, and they have the, like, the De- uh, DeLorean-style flip-up door, and the Wienermobile opens, and this whole, like, Wiener-curious crowd is already gathered because it's the Wienermobile. <laughs> and out, out still, you know, strides Julia Child. You know, oh. obviously the tallest chef ever to walk out of the yeah. Wienermobile. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just... What a what a experience! What an incredible! Day. I still cannot get the picture out of my mind of Julia Child and you in the Wiener Mobile. <laughs> Did yeah, I have, a, I have a great picture of that of, oh, of her blowing her Wiener whistle. Yeah, it's just I wonderful. Love that and that's so funny because last week I was over in Craft uh, Kitchens um, at Craft mm-hmm. here in in uh, the Chicago suburb mm-hmm. and I saw the Wiener Mobile parked right in front of their corporate headquarters. So, yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's such an icon. I mean, it, 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 I mean, and talk about two icons getting together. You know. Amazing. And, and you being the third icon, so there were three icons, uh, you, Julia, oh. Child, and the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. What a moment. What a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to ask, what did you cook for Julia Child? Well, for uh, for her dinner, we did that. Um, um, or you mean at, at her 80th birthday? Yeah, I did the, the. I did. Yeah, for the for the appetizer, I did the um, Perrin Roquefort tart with walnuts. That's uh, it's been a signature dish on Sanford ever since we opened. Mm-hmm. And then for um, what what I did, the, the 12 chefs, we were all broken up into different courses. And so there were three of us doing the dessert. It was Marcel de Saulnier from uh, the Jeff by Chocolate fame, you know, and um, and George uh, George Killian and uh, uh, George Germain and Joanne Killian from Alforno on Providence. And they were doing their tiramisu, and I did the um, our signature uh, ginger snap cannoli, wow. which is once again it was on the menu at Sanford since we opened, and it was for. Um, I mean, the dinner was for 650 of her closest friends. Oh. You know, so it was uh, it was it was quite a quite a huge event at the Capitol Plaza, and um, we um, also the Boston Pops Orchestra was was playing for it, and they were um, instead of using instruments, they used all kitchen utensils oh, to play no. on. See, what? And was, and, it Arthur, and, was Arthur Fever well, directing? <laughs> well, you know, early on during the day, they were going around through the kitchens and picking up you know, pots and pans and um, covers and whisks and all different things. And I, and I heard them practicing when they were, they were starting out during the day. 
And it sounded, you know, I thought, oh, this might sound a little cheesy. And that night, it was brilliant because, and that's why they're musicians. Yeah. You know, that the the sound that they that they got out of that, and um, and as we brought out our our plates, um, we went out to the um, we went out to the all the chefs. You know, as you brought out your plates, you went out to the table that where Julia was with, and she was with. Uh, um, all the PBS people. It was being filmed for a PBS special, uh, salute to uh, salute to the chef uh, Julia Child's 80th birthday, and uh, and they were all asking. They said, "Oh, so it must be, you know, like all this tension and craziness back in the kitchen," and uh, and we said, uh, you know, and, and mentioned. They said, "Well, no." I said, "It's actually like Mr. Rogers' kitchen back there." Which was the, <laughs> <laughs> a little PBS reference, because he was he was there at the table, you know, Mr. Rogers. Aww. It was um, it was just a wonderful time. And the cannoli the cannoli recipe is actually in the book, along with the Baron Roker tart. Wonderful. And and listeners, I am going to provide a link to this wonderful new book called Good um, Good Stock, and just with these great recipes, and also to his website goodstockfarm.com and I do want to talk about your farm as well but I have to while we're talking about icons I also would love to ask you about what you cooked for the Dalai Lama well um, when when I was asked about doing the dinner if I'd mind, uh, of course I, I was thrilled to be doing it and we, we we it was a dinner up in Madison at the Madison Club and so I, I assumed that it would be vegetarian because um, yeah. I thought, well, there's a monk and it's a Dalai Lama. And, um, and the person said enough and he said, he said, well, actually, no. He said, um, the monks can eat anything as long as it's not killed specifically for them. So, which is, which is kind of a nice disclaimer. Yeah. It pretty much opens you up to eating, <laughs> to eating anything. <laughs> And he said the only restrictions they had was that um, he eats between, um, he has a short window between, I think it's 11 and, I think it's 11 and 3, 11 and 1 o'clock, something. That's when they eat, and they eat for the whole day. So the, the lunch was scheduled for that, you know, for that time period. So I, I cooked um, um, something from, I was wanting to do something from Wisconsin, so I, I did uh, Strauss Veal. It was... Uh, a slow cooked Strauss veal loin with uh, with rhubarb and morels. Wow. Time and uh, and when the Dalai Lama, we were told that when when uh, he came, we had a couple, you know, kind of uh, protocol things that you that you don't speak to him unless he speaks to you. Um, as he's as he's coming, you never turn your back on him. So you uh, you know you would back away if um, if he's coming. Um, so. I, we were waiting for him to come, and they didn't tell us when, what time he was coming for security. And the kitchen was downstairs, and we were serving upstairs in the dining room. So we were all set up upstairs, and I was going downstairs to get something. We had been waiting, and it was about it was about 12.30. We had been waiting upstairs for about an hour, and still not knowing what time he was coming. So as I'm walking downstairs, all of a sudden, this entourage with the Dalai Lama starts coming up the stairs. And so I was going to say something, but I thought, oh, I can't say anything. So I just kind of, you know, put my hand up like in a little wave. And then I realized I couldn't turn around and go back up the stairs. So I'm like moonwalking back up the stairs 
to get you know to get out of the stairwell so they could pass. So then I, I, I got behind the booth and they said, and they told us when he came, they said uh, he might stop for a picture, you know, but um, but we don't really know. So as soon as he came around the corner and we were all behind the tables where we were set up to do the food, he, he comes around the corner and he says, "Oh, the chefs! So you guys want a picture?" <laughs> and he comes walking behind and gets between us and he's and, he, and he's right next to me. He grabs my hand. He says, "Ah, so what's for lunch?" And I said, well, I said, well, I'm doing video. And he said, oh, I love video. Then <laughs> he just started giggling like a, like, I mean, almost like a kid. He was oh. such, such an infectious, warm person. Oh. And uh, so then we, you know, we had the dinner and, and he just, I'll tell you in that, he ate for that 45 minutes and he just chowed. Because we had, we had rock bed, bread from our bakery. He, he went through almost a loaf of bread. He had, uh, and he ate every single thing on his plate. I mean, he just cleaned his plate. So he was, he was getting ready for that, you know, for that, you know, like that, that fasting after, after the big meal. But he, he got his big meal in. That is amazing and just truly another taste memory that you have created for the Dalai Lama. And what fun and, and truly compliments to the chef as well. He ate every bite. Oh. <laughs> that yeah, is perfect. I love that. And what I'm excited about, too, listeners, is you can can get these wonderful experience and memoirs and, and recipes from Chef Sandy in his new book called Good Stock. And also, um, coming up next year in 2014, I understand that uh, you have this wonderful new farm, Good Stock Farm, and that's the website, listeners, uh, goodstockfarm.com, where you are inviting people into your kitchen for cooking classes, and I cannot wait to sign up and learn how to cook with oh. you, Chef Sandy. <laughs> yeah, we, we're um, we've taken our um, we have a small we had a small house in Hatfield. We're on a little under two acres, on right on the Connecticut River. And Hatfield is in that I think that five college area between Northampton and Amherst. So there's uh, there's Amherst and UMass and. Uh, Smith College and Holyoke and Hampshire, and um, it's it's in the Pioneer Valley, which is the um, really the the breadbasket of of Massachusetts. It's uh, farmland with the colleges all around, kind of similar to you know like Dane County where Madison is is situated. Yeah. yeah. And um, so we we built onto the back of our we built a, a addition in our house, which is actually a it's our home, and it's going to be our cooking school, and it's uh, uh, and we're calling it Good Stock Farm, and it goes along with the cookbook. It's um, Good Stock Cookbook, and yeah. um, we will be starting cooking classes uh, probably, you know, like next summer, um, oh. just while you know, hands on it. And we started planting the the farm, our uh, our backland, about uh, actually about four years ago. So we got all our fruit trees in. We have 16 fruit trees, and then we planted all the things that take a while to to come around, like uh, rhubarb, asparagus, horseradish, um, berries, and uh, and then we're planting our yearly crops as we go along. Like we, you know, like we have like 200 head of garlic of five, six different varieties in, in the ground right now for um, you know for next year, and. Um, 
So we'll be able to go out and in season we'll be able to either pick out of our garden to use the things for the cooking classes or just go right through the Pioneer Valley, which which uh, pretty much feeds um, all of Massachusetts. That's where all of the a lot of produce comes from. And we have uh, we have a uh, lamb out there, you know, lamb and pork and all the you know different farmers out there. Yes. And then all and then we have all the fish and seafood from the coast. So it it, it truly is a farm to table concept that you are offering. Yes, this just is wonderful and featuring your wonderful recipes from good stock. And I also read somewhere that you have like a thousand recipes repertoire. I mean, how in the world do you remember all these things? Does it just come so naturally to you? You don't even have to reference a recipe. You just, it's ingrained in your mind. Well, well, some things, you know, it's interesting if I, if I don't have a recipe with me and I, and I write it down, it's usually within uh, one or two ounces of, of the recipe. Wow. But but I still I still reference back with with, with that many recipes um, because I've I've been doing a column for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for for 13 years called the Kitchen Technician and that's that's really where the um, where the seed of the of the book came about hmm. from the years of writing for the for the paper and right. um, and that still is a column, then, the kitchen uh, technician. Yeah, I love it, that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's on J- JS Online. It's on every, um, I do it every Sunday. Great. Oh, and, and so do you have a column? Um, what's the topic of the column for this Sunday? Um, the topic for the column for this Sunday, um, you know, I don't know because I'm, I'm four weeks ahead. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I have, to, I have to remember back what... Um, you know what I wrote for this week. That's fine. Are so we're coming up on the holidays. Hmm. With the holidays and Christmas approaching, do you have any special columns that will uh, with tips? Oh, you know what you know what it is. It's it's for uh, it's for Thanksgiving um, uh, stuffing. It's a wild rice stuffing recipe. Oh. For okay. for um, yeah, coming up for Thanksgiving. I'm pretty sure that's that's the one that it's with um, it's with. Uh, Yellow turnips and um, beets, and I mean a lot of a lot of root vegetables in it. That's, that's, I'm pretty sure that's the one that's coming up. And do you ever have an Italian twist on Thanksgiving? Do you uh, any special desserts for you know for Thanksgiving that you prepare? Oh well, um, this year we're we're doing. Uh, I do these little, and this is actually coming up in a column too. Doing these uh, uh, stuffed uh, marzipan stuffed pears mm. with uh, with almond coating. Then we put um, some. There's marzipan inside of them, but then there's a little bit spread on the outside, and then the the almonds are uh, put on that, and then they're baked. So it's like a, you poach the pears first, and then bake them off, and they're really yeah, they're really delicious. That, that kind, kind of a like a fig, you know, a fig and marzipan uh, a filling with them. Oh, that sounds fabulous. And listeners, I'm going to make sure that we provide a lot of online links for you. We'll have goodstockfarm.com, his website, and also, Chef Sandy, you, you had mentioned, and you were just so gracious, that, that um, 
that the listeners can even order a book online and that you would personally inscribe it. Oh, yes, yeah. They, um, on, our, um, on our website, um, that's a good stock farm.com, you can, um, you can sign up for a book there and just let me know how you'd like it inscribed, and we'll, uh, we'll send it out to you. Well, I think those make wonderful holiday gifts, so listeners definitely keep that in mind. And, oh, Chef Sandy, this has been such a delightful kitchen chat. I I will forever remember the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile (laughs) with you and Julia Childs. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Barbara. What a delight. And thank you so, so much. So, listeners, I'll make sure I put all the links you're eager to to see. And I've already signed up for his wonderful newsletter on goodstockfarm.com as well. And also, um, I may want to mention that we're going to be in Chicago at uh, Naha on on Saturday. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. There with, uh, yes, at Naha, which is going to be so much fun. So um, I'll make sure I put a link to that to listeners. And thank you so much, Chef Sandu. This has just been delightful. Oh, thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure. Well, listeners, we are moving from Chef Sandy and, and the exciting tales of, of the Dalai Lama, Charlie Trotter, and um, Julia Child, and we are now going to visit over a cup of tea. And I can't wait to introduce you to our next guest, Teresa Griffin, who is a master of tea. And I am so excited to learn about what really makes a great cup of tea? And so, Teresa, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Hello, Margaret, and thank you for having me. So I'm glad to speak to you about tea. Oh, this is just going to be so relaxing, too. And actually, as we are talking, I am sipping some of your tea, um, oh, the delicious green tea. It was, um, I know I am not pronouncing it correctly, so please forgive me. It's Bai, bai Luo Chun. So Bilu Chun. Bilu Chun. Sorry yeah, Bilu Chun. And, and uh, Emerald Spring Snail. Green Emerald tea. Spring Snail, that's right. That's yes. what it translates to. Um, <laughs> there's a legend to that, supposedly, that, um, you know, in ancient times, that the pluckers were plucking the teas, and one of them ran out of room to put the leaves, so she stuffed them in her blouse. And with the heat, her body heat, it started to um, uh, warp the leaves a little bit and produce this beautiful smell. And uh, one day an emperor was coming through, and he tasted the tea and just loved it, and it became known as Emerald Spring Snails. Emerald Spring Snails. Because wow. Because the shape of the leaves. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I was admiring those because, um, you know, it, and it is all loose tea, and right. uh, and it is beautiful. I mean, it, and, and I'm not a tea connoisseur, so I love going to an afternoon tea. That's one of my favorite things to do. But I've never really taken the time to learn about tea or order something beyond the typical Earl Grey oh, sure. tea variety. Well, Okay. Yeah, well, Earl Grey is beautiful too. That's why it's a, you know, it's a classic tea, but there really is. There's such a range of beautiful and um, different teas, and that's one of the things we like to do is uh, we're a source for premium handcrafted and artisan teas, and we encourage people to discover our world of tea. 
Yes, and I'm going to provide a link, listeners. It's napoleonatea.com, and I'll make sure I provide a link with with the podcast so people can check out your beautiful website and all Thank you. the great, yes, all the great um, information there, but also the wonderful products and and gift um, ideas and everything that you have. But if if you can kind of help us get a four one one on tea and, sure. and <laughs> a basic thing and tea leaves so i assume so that the tea leaves are from a tree and are there or where do they come from well there are uh, most of the tea that we consume comes from the camellia sinensis um, plant and there are just you know a lot of varietals of that and it depends on how the tea is processed that gives us the white the greens the blacks the oolongs and um, you know the poor teas so, um, you know, the white peas, they're barely processed at all. They're pretty much plucked and left to dry. And then the green peas, you know, they're plucked. They go through um, uh, firing or pan firing or steaming, which the Japanese do to give it, you know, that vibrant green color. So it all depends on how the tea is processed that gives us the different types of tea that we enjoy. And does it also make a difference in terms of the soil where it is grown? Oh, sure. The, the different taste kind of uh, evolved right. from that. Right. And the I, terroir, sort of yeah. like wine and chocolate and stuff. It's all of the terroir, the artisans, how they pr- make the tea. It all, you know, really depends, and it gives us these beautiful um, products. Yes, and and how did you become a tea master? I mean, and and how many tea masters are there? I I've not really heard you always hear about the master chefs or whatever, sure. not the the tea master. You know, I'm not quite sure how many tea masters there are exactly, but I you know learned about tea and studied here in the U.S. I went to China, London, Sri Lanka, and along the way just met a lot of knowledgeable people on the subject. But I wanted to study with a master. So it was at the Institute of Masters of Tea Arts in Canada that, you know, I had the opportunity. And I studied under Master Billy. It was very challenging, but it raised my consciousness and appreciation of tea. And I learned to uh, value tea, tea drinking cultures, but most importantly, to savor tea uh, and enjoy it for the simplicity and not necessarily as a connoisseur's art or merely a commodity. So having that kind of training and starting a business, it just heightened the journey. So yeah. Yes, and I love your tagline on the website: discover, yes. taste, and appreciate. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. We um, when I first started, I came across tea, you know, a few years ago online, browsing online, and I probably spent about six hours that evening reading anything and everything I could about tea. The following summer, I went to an expo and was just bowled over. So I wanted to share that experience. So at Napoleon Tea, we do have that tagline of discover, taste, appreciate, where we want people to know beautiful teas, to pique their curiosity to taste them, and hopefully learn more more about them, which brings about appreciation. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And and in the discovery side of things, mm-hmm. and uh, you actually travel around the world and go yeah. into remote tea growing areas in, in Asia to focus on small and single estate tea growers. Yeah. How? Why is it um, so important that these small villages, uh, what role they play in developing the best premium teas? 
Well, we want to give our customers a glimpse into and understand the origin and passion that's put behind the making of these teas. I mean, some of them are backed by generations and hundreds of years of traditions. And um, by us being able to help bring these teas to a larger audience, we can help these villages preserve that craft. And in return, we can continue to enjoy and explore, you know, artisan teas, which is, you know, what our, our goal is. Right. And so what it has been one of your most interesting trips to oh, well. these? There's a lot of, you know, interesting, memorable moments. Uh, you know, I remember one time it was like 530 in the morning. We were getting ready to go to plantation. And um, I woke up to, it sounded like chanting, and I opened my window. We were in Sri Lanka at the time. And just, uh, there was a monastery up in the mountains, and their chants were just flowing down the valley. And it was just the most amazing experience. So there's just a lot of, you know, just amazing experience. Tea, and, you know, actually one thing we want to do is uh, to in some ways share that experience as well. So next year we are offering our first tea safari to Kenya, and it'll be Napoleona Tea Company's red carpet tour. It's uh, being presented by Royalty of Kenya, which will be an amazing trip where participants will not only visit tea plantations, but meet the farmers, share a meal with them, and see how they make their teas. Um, so we, we also yeah. offer um, various classes and workshops for private individuals and groups. And we'll be posting more information on our website. They can check that out at www.napoleonatea.com or email us. Yes. And that sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, quite honestly, I never have associated Kenya with mm-hmm. tea. Yeah. You know, Kenya and tea. And um, how does the taste of African tea, tea from Kenya, compare to that of tea in these remote Asian villages? Wow. You know, that's a kind of a hard thing to say. You know, it's funny. The more you taste tea, you begin to recognize certain characters. You can tell a Darjeeling from a, that it's a Darjeeling tea. You can take a sniff of something and say, oh, wow, uh, this looks like it's from Africa and, um, you know, China. Uh, there's just really such a range um, of uh, of just different teas that are um, beautiful. And um, one way to do that is, you know, to hone your, your palate by trying different teas. Uh, Speaking of which, we do offer uh, tea collections this year for the holidays, and they contain a trio of the same type of tea. They're great for um, tasting, tasting with friends, to see what to pair best with certain foods, or just to pick out, you know, your favorite tea. Speaking of Africa and Kenya, um, we're also launching a holiday duo where um, it's a combination red rooibos from South Africa and a select green tea from either China, Japan, or India. And so that's a perfect them. color combination mm-hmm. with the, exactly. the green and red. But I have a question, because um, once sure. again, I'm, I'm not a tea master by any means. No, 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 not at all. What, what exactly is red rooibos? Am I saying it correctly? Rooibos? Rooibos. rooibos. What mm-hmm. is red rooibos? 
Rhodes is an herb, actually. It does not contain tea. It's not a tea plant. And um, it's something that is indigenous to South Africa, the Cedarburg Mountains area, actually. And it's been consumed by the indigenous tribe over there for like hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, rooibos is, you know, reputed to be very uh, beneficial as far as, you know, health-enhancing properties. Wow. And, and, you know, there are other benefits to tea as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm hearing so much Mm -hmm. these days about the health benefits of tea. And are there differences across the colors of tea? I know I hear a lot about green tea. and I'm Yes, I'm enjoying this delicious cup of your also known as Emerald Spring Snail Green Tea. And I and listeners you'll appreciate this. Um I I usually have tea bags, so I was searching, mm-hmm. trying to find a little and what is it called, the little tea uh, strainer. Oh, sure. and, uh, mm-hmm. I found one from years ago, a little Mickey Mouse ear tea tea strainer. Oh I my goodness, how funny! With the thought, I thought it was your kids. So you know, you whatever can, works. <laughs> so if you can envision, I have a little Mickey Mouse tea strainer oh with this goodness. exotic tea. Yeah, <laughs> that is great. Works absolutely. You know, service wear they are a part of the enjoyment of tea, especially uh, loose leaf teas. And you know, we do offer a selection of tea wear uh, infusers, scoops, and for those without a programmable kettle, you know, we have temperature gauges as well. So those do come in handy. Definitely. And and so what is your best recommendation in terms of preparing the tea? Um, do you typically use the tea kettle or, or do you just, can you use that water cooler that has the heated element for hot water on it? <laughs> sure, sure. You know, um, everybody enjoys their tea differently and, you know, different countries, regions, cultures. We have our own, everybody has their own preferences. However, there are three things to consider to make your best cup. Your tea, your water temperature, and your steeping time. So at Napoleon Tea Company, we taste all of our teas, and we post preparation guidelines for the quantity, temperature, and steeping time. You'll find it on our site and the back of each packaging. So uh, after that, you know, like these are guidelines. So once you prepare it, if it's a new tea you're not familiar with, then we encourage you to prepare it the way that suits your, you know, palate best next time. Great. And mm-hmm. definitely we're going to have the, the link listeners so you can, can check out all of these wonderful products and yeah, and uh, teas and everything. Um, back yeah. to the health benefits of tea. Oh, yes. We can mm-hmm. chat a little bit about that. Sure. So is green tea like the ultimate um, health tea or are there other varieties that mm-hmm. serve different purposes and, and what yeah. are the health benefits? Well, you know, there studies show that different types of teas have um, health enhancing benefits and depending on the situation, certain teas may be more effective than others. Uh, for example, you know, poor tea is reputed to aid with lowering cholesterol. Uh, with the holidays come all the wonderful meals and comfort foods. You know, have a cup of rooibos. It's uh, It makes for an excellent digestive. Again, herbals are very calming and generally caffeine-free. And sometimes for the holidays, you know, that's important. We have yeah. um, this chamomile and lavender, Egyptian chamomile. It's just beautiful. And French lavender, I mean, you open the bag and the aroma alone transports. 
So uh, there's ample research available about the health benefits of tea to aid with digestion, circulation, reduction in blood pressure, et cetera. Wonderful. And then, as you were saying, the relaxation and being able to yeah. to sleep. I'm going to check into that oh, lavender tea for the nights of, of insomnia. Now, please tell us a little bit um, about how you chose the name Napoleonic Tea and what does it mean? You know, that's kind of funny. I get asked that a lot. Margaret, I'm a bit of a history buff, and um, there are certain historical figures that for one reason or another I just find fascinating and memorable. And Napoleon is one of them. You know, I've always liked the name, but I wanted to soften it. So I added an A at the end and made it Napoleana. You know, I just find a certain grace and old-worldish quality images of new lands. I just wanted to evoke that on our site and with our products. When you think, yeah, tea dates back to almost 5,000 years, and it's played a role in the history of many countries. Someone once said that if you want to know history, just follow tea. So it's consumed on every continent and to the degree that it is the second most consumed beverage in the world after water. That is amazing. And I, I'm just mm-hmm. curious, did, did was Napoleon a tea drinker? <laughs> you know, that's so funny. I'm sure he was. I would like to think that he most definitely was. Yes, <laughs> to get that fortification for uh, stuff. I'll have to check on that. Yeah, that, that sounds like fun. And also, I mean, are there any countries um, that really aren't able to grow tea? Uh, are, I mean, in the United States, are there places that um, grow tea here um, in the States? Well, actually, they are beginning here in the, um, the I believe, around uh, Oregon. There, I'm pretty sure there's a place there where they are now um, developing, or probably have at this point developed an oolong tea. Hawaii just last year, I believe, had their first harvest of teas. Um, tea is grown in. It's got to be over 55 countries now, wow. and um, yeah, so. It's it's just really spread all over, and it's just amazing what they're coming up with. Uh, and are there are there hybrids? I'm sorry, I'm just still trying to understand sure. what a, a a tea tree or tea bush looks like. Yeah. They're all basically the same, but they have different tastes depending on where they grow. Mm-hmm. Or are there different, different tastes, yeah. varieties, or or how does yeah, that? There's work? there's different varietals and uh, cultivars. Uh, in some areas, you'll find tea trees that actually grow to over 40 feet tall, and they've been around for hundreds of years. In some places, they keep the uh, tea bushes trimmed, particularly in uh, Japan, where everything is uh, done by machinery. Mostly everything is done by machinery, and so they keep the um, the bushes low, uh, the table, I should say, pretty low, so it'll be easy to pluck. But, yeah, some leaves are bigger than others, and some are just more hardier and take to real cold, frosty weather, some like, you know, the humid um, climates. So, And, again, all of this affects the um, the flavor of the finished product, the tea. Wow. And is it like a perennial type of thing where um, you're talking about harvesting or plucking mm-hmm. the leaves? Yeah. I mean, is it kind of sure. like... Um, a, just you use each leaf, or there are only sure. certain ones you can pick? It, it depends. Um, like if you go to um, a tea factory, there's a plucking order. 
And uh, depending on what kind of tea they're making, it might just be the bud. And those are usually the most expensive teas where you talk like silver needle, um, Ceylon tips, where it's just that tender little bud that they're plucking. And it takes thousands and thousands of these to just make a pound of tea. Uh, it, all, it all depends on what kind of teas tea is being made. And okay. that's how they, they pluck their teas. Oh, this is fascinating. And and I'm also reading these days about tea tree oil. Is that related to the tea tree or is it a separate thing? No, I, I you know what, I'm not 100% sure as far as the tea oil, but I am pretty sure they extract it from uh, uh, teas, tea bushes, tea trees, or the leaves. Yeah. yeah, tea is really such a versatile product. I mean, yeah. it's a beverage for cooking cosmetics pharmaceuticals and, you know, the Specialty Tea Institute announced that over half of Americans now consume or drink tea at least once a day. And this is a great opportunity for us because uh, we're always looking and evolving and exploring um, new different types of teas to bring to uh, the U.S. and our customers. So we have a lot of New teas coming towards the end of the month, more floral, roasted, and aged oolongs, green teas from India, more from uh, Africa, and, of course, China's best. So, Great. And what is exact, What is an oolong? Because I always see these on the, you know, mm-hmm. the afternoon tea menu or right. whatever. And, and what are the distinguishing differences between a Darjeeling and an mm-hmm. oolong and... Um, yeah. That type of thing. Sure. Uh, Darjeeling is a location. It's a region. That's where um, a particular type of tea comes from. It's a black tea. An oolong is, um, you know, it's one of actually the most uh, difficult teas to make. It's very labor intensive, I should say. It requires a lot of rolling and resting of the leaf and rolling and um, all of that just, and, you know, roasting. All of that just enhances the the flavor of the tea, so uh, and it can also go through multiple steeping times and infusions. So we're looking forward to our new batches of uh, oolong teas that'll be coming. The trend is towards more lighter and floral right now, but I tell you there are some that are just deeply roasted, heavily roasted, and are complex and just so beautiful. Right, um, and the yeah. com and and you'd mentioned the floral and the combination, like hibiscus. Is that an ingredient? Some no, actually, you know, a lot of these um, teas that are just pure um, tea, they get. It's amazing how flavorful they really are without any additives, without any scenting. Um, huh. On their own, right? A lot of it again is the terroir. It picks up from what's around it whether there happens to be like a little citrus tree there and, you know, the scent or what of that blends with the leaves. And before you know it, you have just this gorgeous, um, just this gorgeous tea. Oh, that that is so exciting. And you can get these gorgeous teas from your wonderful website, napoleonatea.com. And listeners, I'll definitely, definitely send a link. And I just am so excited to try the 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 green and red combination for the yes. Christmas holiday. With the holiday do absolutely. Yes, yeah. that's going to be great. We offer yeah. um, a cost-effective way for our customers to purchase our products, again, on our website, and we do ship regular on regular business days, Mondays through Fridays, in the U.S., 
Um, the holiday duos range from $19. The tea collections, which there are three, the winter white, the um, festive red, and the holiday green. And uh, they range from $11 to like $14.95. So most stocks, in-stock items will go out within 24 hours. With the holidays, though, we ask for a little more time. It's closer to 48 hours. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think they make wonderful hostess gifts. and Absolutely. Yeah, so it's just a wonderful kind of a, a unique gift to, to give during the sure. holiday seasons and a gift to yourself to go have a cup of tea. Right, and, <laughs> and you know, we do. We invite people to also visit us at the Cornucopia Gift Fair in Evanston so they can actually see um, these products and the different teas in person, touch them, smell them. Um, We'll be there on November 22nd through the 24th, and it's sponsored by the Women's Club of Evanston. And we'll also be at the International Holiday Festival at the Kenosha Public Museum on Saturday, December 7, 2013. Terrific. And those are all on your website, so the listeners can can click on for more information, and and they'll be able to meet you in person. Then Is that right? Absolutely. Right, and you can ask the questions you've always wanted to ask to the Tea master. Oh, sure. I, I'm Let's just talk tea. <laughs> Let's. And do you have a favorite tea that really has, um, you know, just just become a part of of who you are, you know, through the years as a tea master that you fully appreciate the nuances of of the tea. You know, that's funny. I get asked that a lot. I would say I lean more towards um, just the plain unflavored, uh, you know, unscented teas. However, you know, I appreciate so many different kinds and all of our teas, we taste and we cup them and um, before we put them online and we prepare them different ways to figure out the best way that we like it and those are the ones we choose to sell. Okay, and then I, going back to something you just said, and I don't know if that is like a um, a tea term when you said you cup the tea. Does that mean you just put it sure. in the cup and infuse it, or what well, does um, that mean? <laughs> well, cupping, <laughs> yeah, cupping is a professional way to ensure the quality of the teas and. Again, we do this for each and every tea prior to and after purchase or import. Tastings are a great way for customers to sample a flight or a variety of, say, you know, the green three green teas. You know, particularly with with friends, that's awesome, actually. And discover something new, which ones you might like or want to pair with a certain food. So the tea collections would be handy for this because they contain a trio of the same type of tea. Great that have already been tested. So this is just I am just so grateful for the time you have so spent much. with us today Thank on you. Kitchen Chat. I I've learned so much about the world of tea and truly appreciate uh learning about the different varieties and, and the characteristics and look forward to visiting your website which is napoleonatea.com and listeners I will provide a link and, and this is so fitting, Teresa. Um you know, I first of all thank you so 
so much for being on Kitchen Chat. And I always end each uh, segment and podcast of Kitchen Chat by encouraging the listeners to sit down and savor the day. So when I say that today, first of all, mm-hmm. thank you very much for being on the sure. show. <laughs> and I also want to encourage listeners, this is a perfect time of year to grab a cup of tea and sample a new flavor and Absolutely. just say yes and to take the time during your busy day to just sit down and savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.